0: jesus in church and i you know we're gonna we're gonna get to that so i want you to keep that spirit of this um false prophet the american jesus the the god cast in the image of our own um kind of imperialism i want you to keep that in the back of your mind because we will get to it today but i my heart is actually still on that song we did right before um devon came up to speak same god You know, sometimes I have a hard time because it's like, you're the same God now as you were back then. And I know who God is now. God is loving and kind and just. God is a God liberating the captives and setting people free. But sometimes when we go back into scriptures, it can be kind of confusing. Like, are you the same God? Are you the same God? When we read about genocide, when we read about some of the more troubling aspects of scripture... And we're gonna talk about um, a complicated text today. But before we get into the text, obviously, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. Now, I wanna start with poetry. I, uh, at the same time that I was rocking out to Bad Religion, um, I was also taking a poetry class in college, and I, I was struggling really hard. Who here loves poetry, feels at home in poetry, maybe is a poet, all right, I see you, poets. All right, who reads poetry and feels, like, totally lost? All right, there's more of us. So if, if there's a tug of war, we have that on our sides, at least. Uh, but poetry is really powerful. Poetry uh, can hold a lot of different meaning. And one of the struggles that I had when I was young reading poetry was really wrestling with it and being like, okay, but what does it mean? Like, what does it mean, period? What is the one meaning? What is the authorial intent? What does this poem mean? And I really struggled because poetry isn't like that, right? There's authorial intent, but there's also the reader's context. There are layers and layers. Poetry is about um, conveying emotion, conveying experience. And because experience is subjective, it's going to be different for everyone who encounters a poem. That's actually where its power lies. Poetry is beautiful because it can hold so much multiplicity of meaning. Really good poetry means lots of things and means lots of different things to different people. Now, when Jesus taught, he didn't use poetry, but he did use parables. And parables are similar in their power. They hold lots and lots of different meaning. They can be really confusing. They're not exact. Sometimes in our culture, especially with so many of us being the kind of people who feel alienated from poetry, which I think is another problem in our world, that we haven't been given the space and tools and creativity to to connect with that kind of communication. So many of us have been so trained in a linear way of thinking that we shut down when we're asked to enter creative, imaginative space, which is what Jesus is doing every time he tells a parable for the math uh, enthusiasts in the room anybody we have like similar there are some people who are like pro poetry and some people are pro math god bless those of you who are both but we got any math nerds in here all right hey sweet okay do you remember parabolas parabolas that's the that's the word from which we get the word parable a parabola is a curve right A parable is something that brings something alongside, puts something in relationship to. Right? So when Jesus is teaching in parables, he's not saying this thing is this. He's saying you don't understand this thing. Let's take a curve and look at this thing. And we're gonna do that over and over and over again, and eventually you will understand relative to where you are and what these stories are, something more deep and true about that thing, the kingdom. That you can't quite grasp so when we read a parable and we're like what does it mean if we are searching for one specific answer we've already misunderstood the project i i'm giving you all of this context in part because a lot of the parables that we've been taught in churches we have been told there is one meaning for right we've been told there's one particular meaning but parables are supposed to bring the teachings the kingdom divinity alongside us it is about proximity not equations we're meant to read these things understand them tell these stories in context in community in conversation with the world and with the whole bible and today i'm hoping that i'm going to bust up one of your parables all right so Caveat, know that your interpretation or the interpretation that you encountered in the past may still be really valid. This is the thing about multiplicity of meaning. One meaning doesn't invalidate another. God can also speak through the wildest context. So if you heard something in a way that I'm going to talk about it today that I think can be really harmful, it doesn't invalidate that you might have found a truth of God's love in it as well. How many of us have been involved in communities that uh, preached harm, preached against our very beings, maybe we're straight-up cults, and still encountered God there, right? This is the power of God to show up through all of these different stories and conversations. So hold sacred that which is sacred, and open yourself to what might bring new and different awareness as we come alongside the kingdom today. So we're going to talk about the parable of the talents. Who knows the parable of the talents? All right, we got some familiarity in the room. No worries if you don't. We'll get there. Um, what's the main takeaways? Anything you associate with the parable of the talents? Shout it out! What's up? Octavia Butler. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the. That is a great association. Yes. Everybody read Octavia Butler's parables, um, Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents. What else? What else do we associate with the Parable of the Talents? Be faithful with a little and you'll get more. Anyone else? Don't play it safe. Anything else? Hmm? Tithing, right? Give back? Cool. Okay. So, I'm going to read to you one version. This still isn't our reading for the day. We're going to get to that later. Uh, I'm going to read to you one version from the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who was leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. He gave to one five valuable coins. To another, he gave two. And to another, he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability, and then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. He said, master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, excellent. You are good and faithful. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come celebrate with me. Now, the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown, you gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. I hid my valuable coin in the ground here have what's yours. His master replied, you evil and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has 10. Those who have much will receive more and will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless service and, servant and throw him out into the farthest darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Fun! <laughs> Does anybody feel a little less settled after having read it? Yeah. Yeah. What stands out? Any words or feelings? Hmm? Evil. Fear. Lazy. Anger. What? Shame. Yeah. Yeah, some of this doesn't quite sit right. The traditional teaching of this parable is that God is this master, and God is investing in you, And you are called to take risks and to go out and to do something with what you've been given. Because to bury it in the ground is to be faithless with what you have. And again, I want to reiterate that if there is a a truth, a connection to God, to divinity, to joy, to risk-taking that you have held from that interpretation of this parable, continue to hold it, continue to celebrate it. But we're going to break this parable open a little bit. Now, one of the first tip-offs that this reading might not be how Jesus intended it is that we have this extreme wealth going on in this situation. So the talents are a lot of money. It's like so much more than so much more than a day's wage. And actually, when you, when you work out the math, this man is giving these three people like hundreds of thousands of dollars. But he's referring to it later as a little. Because I've given you a little. Now, the other thing is that burying money was actually kind of a common practice and not considered a stupid one. We hear that and we're like, what an idiot. But that's actually a really common practice of keeping something safe in that context, burying something in the ground. The other really important thing here is that gaining interest, which is what these... these servants did, is about getting profit off of other people's labor, right? We take this for granted because capitalism runs on it. Like, that's the whole logic of the highest levels of capital. We talk about it in these, like, fun ways, like passive income, but the whole idea behind passive income is that you're not doing anything to generate the wealth. It's because someone else is, and you're effectively stealing it, it's legal because it's how our entire economy works, but what these servants are doing when they're turning a hundred thousand or six hundred thousand dollars into 1.2 million dollars is they are accumulating money for their master off the profit off the labor of others. And so when we talk about interest that's what we mean and according to Jewish law, that was illegal now In practice, it was everywhere, right? But in the same way that the Jewish law has built into it Jubilee, which is every 50 years, all debt is erased, everything is set back to zero, because the whole idea behind Jewish economics is redistributive wealth, trying to make sure that everybody has everything they need. And and the Jewish law was sort of like, yeah, this gets out of balance really fast. We're going to do soft resets every seven years, a hard reset every 50 years. And you know what you can't do? You can't make income off of other people's work. It's rude. And it's it's going to culminate in the exploitation of human beings. Right? The entire economy in that context ran that way. Our entire economy runs this way. And it was technically illegal, but a lot of those laws, including Jubilee, were ostensibly never followed, right? But this was God's intention for how to live in community. Another tip-off here is that the master, this man, who we assume because he's in a position of power, is Jesus, is described as a hard man, is described as someone who takes from other people, who reaps where he doesn't sow right? Somebody who's deeply invested in this system of exploitation. And when confronted with this, like, hey, you're a hard man, this man doesn't say, like, oh, no, I'm the compassionate and loving God. He says, yeah, I am. He says, those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. Does this sound consistent with Jesus' teachings? But for those who don't have much, even their little bit will be taken from them. And the last big tip-off, he says immediately after, now take this worthless servant and throw him out into the darkness. Worthless. Does that sound like Jesus' assessment of the lowly? No. That doesn't sound like Jesus at all. What does that sound like? You are worthless if you don't produce. What does that sound like? capitalism that sounds like capitalism or proto-capitalism or feudalism or caesar any of those systems that are set up about exploitation and and drawing off of others right in that time and place 1 to 2% the 1 to 2% wealthiest owned about half of the land does that sound familiar it should because it's still true right this is Uh, a situation we are still mired in now we also have to put these parables in context in matthew when this story is told it's during holy week it's on the second day of holy er, or on the tuesday which is table flipping tuesday one of my favorite days what is jesus all about on table flipping tuesday about railing against people who are charging interest and making profit off of people's desire to connect with God, right? This is also from Matthew 25. Anybody else remember anything from Matthew 25? Matthew 25 is the sheep and the goats. Matthew 25 is the least of these, where Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, a.k.a. the most exploited, a.k.a. those who have the least, you do to me. How does that square? Tell me how that squares with Jesus being the master in this parable. Make it make sense. Now, this is not the only telling of this story. This is the one that we like to tell because it's the least harsh one. And so it makes the most sense if we're trying to make Jesus into this harsh master. But there's another telling of this story. It's in Luke. In Luke, Jesus is not telling it. On Table Flipping Tuesday, Jesus is telling it at Zacchaeus' house. After Zacchaeus, who has been participating in this exploitative economy, divests from it and says, I will give back more and more and more than I ever have taken. I repent and I divest myself from the system of exploitation. Now in Luke's depiction, this man isn't just a man. He's a nobleman and he's trying to be king. He's trying to be crowned king. We have been trained because of an intersection of the metaphors of scripture, which is just our best attempt in human language to describe God, and because of American Jesus, nationalism, Christian nationalism, our understanding of human rulers. We have been trained in the scriptures to hear king and think Jesus. But any time Jesus is referred to as king, it's satire. When we're talking about kings in scripture, we're talking about Caesar. We're talking about the empire. And when we say Jesus is king, we mean Jesus is king because Caesar has been dethroned. Jesus is king because we've overthrown the monarchy. Jesus is king because these systems no longer rule over us and we have a different kind of ruler. But because we can only speak in parabolas, we described our best understanding what it means to be in relationship with a God who reigns. And all the metaphors we have lean on those horrible figures of abusing power. And so when we say king and talk about Jesus, we have to remember that Jesus represents power from below, and Caesar represents power from above. So when we talk about this story, when we talk about any of these stories, our assumption when we read is to recreate the hierarchies that we're used to in the world and to put Jesus at the top. But that is so contrary to all of Jesus' teachings. Jesus didn't come in at the top. Jesus wasn't Caesar. Jesus was a brown-skinned rural peasant So all of who Jesus is, what he teaches, the choices he makes, puts him at the bottom, power from below. So why, when we read this, would we assume is it our default to put Jesus at the top and in the position of power? Why would Jesus be king in every story? The reason that we've come to do this is because we have been trained by our culture and by our churches and our Christian tradition to read from positions of power even if we have none. It is people who have been at the top. It is the Caesars and the Constantines who have been interpreting Jesus for us. So they see power, they align Jesus with themselves, and they say Jesus is in this position of power. Part of our work To deconstruct the Christianity of empire and to reconstruct our place in the Jesus movement following this brown-skinned revolutionary is to reassess power in all of these stories and to make sure that we're viewing Jesus as power from below and not power from above. In the same way that we're trying to ditch our heteronormativity and say like, hey, we shouldn't have a presumption of straightness when we're reading the Bible we need to have a critical power analysis that says, hey, we shouldn't have a presumption of power from above when we're reading the Bible. We need to understand how Jesus stands in in contrast to those systems. And when we don't, we end up reading Jesus as king in an earthly way, instead of Jesus as king of the vulnerable, power from below. So we're gonna hear Luke's depiction of this story as you read it, I want you to think critically with a different lens. Who is Jesus in this story? Who is the king? We've established, I've suggested, that the king, the master, is Caesar. So where does that put Jesus and Jesus' followers? Do we have our reading?
1: As the crowd was listening to Jesus, He added a parable to to relay because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the reign of God was about to appear immediately. Then Jesus said, A high-born person went to a distant country to receive their royal authority and then returned. This person summoned ten of their slaves and gave them ten gold mina coins and said to them, to business until I come back. But the citizens of their country hated this person and sent an envoy following, saying, we do not want this person to rule over us. And it was as in returning, having received royal authority, this por- person ordered these slaves, to whom had been given the money, to be summoned in order to find out what profit they had made. The first came forward and said, Highness, your gold coin has made ten more gold coins. Then this person said to that slave, Well done, good slave, because in little you have been trustworthy, take over ten cities. And the second came saying, Highness, your one gold coin has made five gold coins. Then this person said to that slave, And you be over five cities. Then the other came, saying, Highness, here is your gold coin. I wrapped it and stored it in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a harsh person, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. This person said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew that I was a harsh person, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on the banker's table so I, when I returned, could have collected it with interest? And then this person said to the bystanders, Take the gold coin from him and give it to the one who has ten gold coins. And they said to this person, Highness, he has ten pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence.
0: The word of the Lord. <laughs> what are we noticing in this reading of the gospel, which is a, a version that we don't normally hear of the same story? Anything stand out? Slaughter. Yeah. Sacrifice? Yeah. We see this extremely harsh king. Rebels who say, we don't want this. And the king's reaction is to murder them all. Right? Again, this does not sound like our God. This sounds like our Caesars. We see those who have inordinate amounts of money, trusting them to their closest employees making more and more extracting more and more and rewarding those who can exploit the most that sounds like our economy that does not sound like god's economy so when we're understanding this where is jesus who is jesus in this story well we know that jesus is not the murderous exploitative caesar king an alternate reading suggests that Jesus is the third servant, the one who buries the talent, the one who puts the, talent, or puts the coin in a handkerchief, the one who says, I'm out. I do not participate in this. The one who knows that the king, that the Caesar, is a harsh man. The one who critiques power, saying, you take what isn't yours. I'm not helping you. I'm not participating in this. The one who says to the face of the one in power, what you're doing is wrong and I won't participate even if you are tempting me with earthly rewards. Jesus is the one who, along with all those who resist the empire, gets slaughtered. In in Luke, we have this really helpful preface to this parable. He added a parable to relay because he was near Jerusalem, right? Near this coming conflict, near the cross. And because they, the followers, thought the reign of God was about to appear immediately. So Jesus is like, oh, you want to know what's going to (laughs) happen? Buckle up. Because the powers in place are not going to react kindly when we exempt ourselves from their systems of exploitation. We are going to tell power to its face how morally bereft it is, and it's going to come down on us with violence, on me with violence. Like, no, dude, victory is not imminent. Victory is a long-haul fight of resisting these deeply embedded structures of hierarchical, dominating power. Josh Scott, who wrote a great book called Bible Stories for Grown Ups, says this. Jesus' refusal to accept the way Caesar has decided to run the world was met with brutal force. Jesus announced, embodied, and organized an alternative way of life called the kingdom of God. This was not a pie in the sky, heaven when you die version, but a concrete earthly version. Jesus envisioned a world of justice and compassion, peace and equity, in which everyone had enough. This was an on-earth implementation of the in-heaven reality, God's will, and not Caesar's being done. Part of that vision for Jesus was to refuse to engage in an exploitative economy. That's what the third servant does in this story. He buries the coin because he won't engage in a practice that brings harm to others, especially his fellow Jews. Josh goes on to write that Jesus is a kind of whistleblower in this story. Someone calling attention to the exploitative nature of things that are taken for granted. So much of parable telling is about expanding imagination, saying, let us talk about what's possible. Deconstruction, reorienting ourselves to the ways that power has stolen our texts and repackaged them as propaganda, it's not just so that we can break it apart, it's so that we can find within these parables the imagination, the possibility of what can be. The kingdom is an invitation to imagine a whole different economy, a whole different world, free of exploitation and domination. But it's also an imagination exercise in what it will take to get there. And this is Jesus saying, hey, this path is not easy. And when you oppose the empire, you will be met with brutal force and violence. You may be deemed worthless. There might be a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But that's not God's doing. And anyone who tells us it is, is participating in, corroborating the story of the empire. We cannot defame God in that way. God does not exploit. God does not reward those who extract more and more from those who have less. But the empire does. And while it threatens us with violence when we oppose it, it also rewards us with material when we participate in it. And so, if we are to be faithful followers of Jesus, coming alongside the truth, the kingdom with this story, we have to understand that our invitation is to challenge ourselves to figure out how to to divest from these systems of power and abuse. Where are we tempted to align ourselves with empire because we will be rewarded for doing so? And where are we terrified? to align with our own and others' marginalized identities because we fear that we will be met with violence. This Tuesday, Cameron mentioned, there are trans people who are just trying to swap clothes. Have you ever heard of a clothing swap being controversial before? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. People are just like getting together, being like, Hey, I see you. Hey, I see you. I got this cute shirt. Do you want it? Oh, I like that, those pants right? But because transness, because drag, because gender bending is so kingdom-oriented, is so threatening to hierarchy and domination, there are literal Nazis, literal Nazis that are coming to make a ruckus about it, threatening with violence. And so Jesus says, hey, you're not doing it wrong if the Nazis are coming for you. You're not doing it wrong if people in power are gunning for you. You're not doing it wrong if you're poor. You're not doing it wrong if you feel under attack. And you know what? I'm right there with you. I buried my coin. I'm not participating in this. I am divesting of supremacy culture. I am neither with the Nazis nor ignoring them. I'm with you. I'm at the clothing swap, I'm protecting the rights of children to hear stories and imagine different possibilities of gender expression. I am at that clothing swap, affirming the identities of people who have been suppressed and buried themselves. I won't do that to them. I'm with you. I'm with you against the Nazis, and you know what, they're coming. They are. But that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong, it means that this is a long-haul fight. It means it's a long fight, and, and it's not going to happen immediately. But that doesn't mean we're losing. That doesn't mean we're losing. Because when the violence comes from the empire and comes down like a hammer, when, when the empire comes for Jesus, tortures him, calls him worthless, crucifies him, the empire thinks that's the end. And we know that the empire's wrong. When the violence comes for us, we know that that is not the end, that they do not have the final say. And what Jesus says is you bury that talent in the the ground, you divest from these systems of power and privilege and pain, and it's going to cost you in the short term. But the long-term road is towards resurrection and new life, and I will be the first to go. I will show you the way. I will be there with you i will be the one who takes that first brutal force and i will show you that on the other side of the empire's violence is life is resurrection is hope they don't want you to think the kingdom is possible they don't want you to think that a casual lovely celebrated gathering of clothing swap and gender expression is possible they want you to eliminate that from your imagination because it would be too dangerous too violent well you know what they're wrong They're wrong, and we can prove them wrong by surviving the violence and threats and domination of empire and emerging on the other side more whole. We will be more whole when we participate in these subtle acts of daily resistance. We will be more whole when we claim the parts of ourselves that have been silenced. We will be more whole when we act in solidarity with one another, divesting from those systems of power and pain. Jesus is with us every step of the way. Jesus will rise, and so will we. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we believe that we will win. We believe that you will rise. We believe that love will prevail. But it is so hard to hold on to that belief when swimming around our head are these alternate interpretations that just reify the power of Caesar. God, clear our minds. Open our hearts. Allow us to understand your truest nature, to put all of the teachings in conversation with your heart. May we see you for who you are. May we see Caesar for who he is. And may we see ourselves as your beloved children, empowered from below to make our own ruckus and build the kingdom. Amen.